folks. Well, welcome back to another edition of The Herd. I'm David Shepard, MLA for Edmonton City Center. Proud new Democrat. It's been a uh, busy month already uh, coming out of the Christmas holidays, kind of hitting the ground running. And I know me and all of my colleagues have been uh, been getting our feet back under us, out meeting with folks in the community, talking about a number of issues. And uh, for myself, as the official opposition critic for health, I can tell you there's still lots of stuff going on and carrying over from some of the decisions that the government made at the end of last year. And of course, uh, Minister Tyler Shandro, the Minister of Health, has been out there in the media talking and certainly was out there just uh, just before the new year talking about uh, that the fact that they were going to be making some big moves on health care this year. Now, I think it's really important when we're talking about healthcare in the province to recognize this is a complex system. It isn't something that evolved overnight. The kinds of issues that we're identifying in terms of what are higher costs in our healthcare system, they've been building for a while. There's stuff that our government knew about and was working to take action on. And the fact is they are part of the conservative healthcare system that was built in Alberta. Let's remember, conservatives held government in Alberta for 44 years. The healthcare system that we have today is the system that they built. The issues that we have spring from choices that they have made. You know, it goes all the way back to the 90s under Premier Klein when we saw some fairly deep cuts to the healthcare system. Uh, That meant that we lost a a lot of frontline positions. It meant that we closed facilities, that we lost beds uh, for treatment. It means that we saw many nurses and other uh, healthcare specialists, even family doctors, young medical graduates that chose to leave Alberta because there was no opportunity here. So that takes us into the early 2000s. All of a sudden, oil and gas are coming back up. And so we've got a bit of money again. We start spending on healthcare again. And what do you know? We got to hire back a lot of those folks. And it's going to take a little more money and a little more enticement to bring them back to the province of Alberta. We have to start building some of that healthcare infrastructure again. And what we saw with conservative governments is roller coaster budgeting. We had erratic health care funding from one year to the next, depending on what the price of oil was. And in the process of that, they negotiated contracts with doctors and physicians and with, uh, with nurses and other folks. The conservative governments negotiated, pro- negotiated contracts and wages based on the realities of the province at the time. As oil was booming, wages were high, cost of living in many parts of the province was increasing. They set these things up. Indeed, uh, we we see that uh, that things changed a lot. Don Braid wrote about this in a in a great article last year. He said, you know, in the dying PC years, we saw spending spike from four to more than six percent. It would go down to two percent, then up to seven percent. He says staffing and programs were flatlined, resuscitated, put through the same survival cycle again. It was chaotic for doctors, nurses, and too often for patients. So really. When you take that sort of an approach, when there doesn't seem to be that long-term vision in planning, this kind of erratic funding, it's no surprise that you end up with an inconsistent and frankly politicized environment for healthcare delivery, and that's going to frankly lead to higher costs and probably much less than optimal results. So the fact is then we recognize that because of this poor management of the healthcare system in many respects, we've got issues we need to fix now. So our government, we worked really hard to try to sort of stabilize the system after those years of chaos, stable, predictable funding, capped it at 3% growth per year, and sat down and worked with our frontline providers, worked with physicians, talked with others to try to figure out how we start to untangle 
the mess that conservative governments had set up. Now, there's no disagreement really amongst anybody about where the higher costs are in the system. And certainly two of those areas are in uh, in pharmaceuticals to some respect, though that's not one of the highest, but it is an area of cost. And particularly, we have newer medications and things that are coming on that do cost more. And the other area then is, is uh, staffing and pay. So we recognize that, yeah, uh, obviously it does cost money to provide the folks that are going to provide the care and to keep them funded. And it makes sense that we should pay them reasonably well. That's important frontline work. So whether it's nurses, whether it's allied health professionals like like physiotherapists and others, and or whether it's physicians who are operating clinics as independent business people, employing people in their community, paying their overhead and providing that frontline patient care that we provide a reasonable wage. So that's what we worked on as a government. The UCP have have decided that they they need to cut healthcare spending as part of their 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 chase to see the budget balance by 2023 and of course with their choice to uh, to uh, drop the corporate tax in Alberta at a cost of about 4.7 billion dollars over the next 4 years they've got some room they got to make up so they're targeting savings in healthcare but the way they are going about it frankly as Don Braid noted is chaotic it's unfocused. They do not consult. They aren't talking with frontline providers. They seem to be dictating from the top down. And there are concerns about what those impacts have when there is that lack of communication, when they leave people in the dark and they spring things at the last minute. So first, I'm going to talk with a, with a group of patients, a group of individuals who live with autoimmune diseases. These are basically diseases where the body's immune system begins to attack itself. It can express itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, arthritis, uh, MS is an autoimmune disease, uh, or uh, a lot of gastrointestinal uh, issues, uh, in, in inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And I'm going to talk with them about how the government of Alberta and Minister Shandro have rolled out what is not an unreasonable what is not an unreasonable policy in general, but the manner in which it's been rolled out to force these patients to switch from the medications which currently keep them stable to a new suite of cheaper, similar medications. The manner in which that's been done, how that's created a lot of fear and uncertainty and and issues for both uh, specialists and physicians and the patients themselves. So here's my conversation then with some patients who are living with autoimmune diseases and their experience and concern so far with some of the government's decisions about how they access the medications and keep them stable. All right, folks. Well, I'm here with uh, with a couple of folks who themselves have real frontline personal experience with the question of treatment for autoimmune diseases using uh, biologics and the and the question now of requiring them to switch to biosimilars. So I have uh, Leanne Sprake, who uh, lives with Crohn's disease, and I have Wilma Ritter, who lives with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Excellent. So Leanne, uh, you have a unique experience. You started getting treatment for Crohn's way back in the beginning when they were first just starting to do studies around this new medication, Remicade, sort of the first of the biologics. Could you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? Yes, I was a guinea pig. Uh, I signed up, volunteered, like absolutely, because in my early 20s, this was one of the first new drugs that had come on the market for any kind of inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis. It was groundbreaking. So, um, 
at the time it was it was a big risk you you had to sign paperwork for lots of things not having babies um right. uh, potential side effects they just didn't know so back then it was it's an eye opener to see where it's come from to where it is now how long ago was that uh, I want to say it's over 15 years. About 15 years ago. Okay. So it, to see it, unfortunately, we had to fight for MK to get a, approved back mm. then. And now it feels like like the fight is starting all over again. So you, you were telling uh, telling me earlier about the actual trial. And so you're on the drug. You went off the drug. Tell us a bit sort of what, what happened in that process. So the, the drug trial usually is for a certain period of time, right? So they have a controlled study that's usually, it's usually closed so that mm-hmm. you don't know if you're getting the drug or not. Um, you could be getting a placebo and you actually do, the trial usually doesn't last too long um, but usually what happens after if you are p- getting a positive reaction the pharmaceutical companies will they call it compassionate care sure. they will they will allow you to stay on it because obviously you will be a, a, a customer um, while they wait for the government's approval process to get it covered we had to fight back then to get it covered because it was so brand new it was and it was so expensive right so uh, unfortunately Unfortunately, though, the, 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 the compassionate care time ran out. So I was, I had no choice. I was forced to stop the medication and progressively within three weeks, I was back in the hospital sicker than ever, um, with very little options at that point. But you then later had a chance to go back and try remicating it. You did another drug. You said Humira. Humira, that didn't because work. a trial came up. Yep. So yep. That, that didn't work out. So you went back to remicate after it was approved. And what, so you'd had really good results with remicade the yeah, first time. Yeah, we right? called it my superwoman drug. Okay. Like it, it was, it was, it was mind boggling how healthy I was. And what was your experience then after having left remicade, tried a different medication and then coming back to it when you went on remicade the second time, was it as effective? Nope. No, it never worked as well as it ever had. It never, it never had that sort of pump that sort of like, oh, my body can tell something's working. It just kind of made me stay out of the hospital. Like it really didn't, it didn't give me the sort of, um, like when they would do all the scopes and they would check for inflammation, it never gave me the results. And has, have, have your doctors given any reason for that or sort of explain what Yeah, absolutely. I built antibodies towards the medication. So as soon as I went off of it, my body kind of counterbalanced as like, oh, you're not taking this anymore. Mm. So we're going to start making these antibodies that you don't, like you don't need this medication. So when you went back on it, it was just never as effective again. It just, right. just didn't work. And I guess that's one of the challenges here, like for folks listening that aren't familiar, uh, biologics are a very particular kind of drug. They're actually manufactured from biological material. They're actual biologic material that's, you know, infused into the body that then sort of elicits certain reactions, turn certain things on or off. And so that's very different between a biologic and a biosimilar in that they're kind of close, but not the same. It's not like a medication and a generic medication where the molecule is 100% exactly the same. Yeah. It's not a bioexact. Right. It's a biosimilar. Exactly. Now, even uh, I understand even amongst biologics, even, you know, the same two batches of biologics can have variations and that sort of thing. But it's, there's even bigger difference than between the biologic and biosimilar. And so that's where it can have that kind of impact. And so it's your body then can, because it's biological stuff, can develop antibodies, start to attack it, resist it. It may yeah. not be effective. And the GIs, they want you to stay on, on this medication for as long as you can mm-hmm. for that exact reason. Right. Because they don't want you to run out of this option because there isn't a whole bunch of options after this. Right. right? And you will be- build antibodies. So they want you to stay on it and stay as well as you can and not damage that tissue that it's healing. And as soon as you stop it, 
you can't you can't go back and the damage you do is irreversible right and Wilma you were talking about that earlier so Wilma you uh, you've been living with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis with some start of you fairly early in life and it's had a significant impact on you in your your work as a, as a pianist a music teacher and, and a ranger can you tell us a bit about your experience well I was diagnosed at the age of four um, I at was four. still growing wow. yes so um, when you're growing up with a disease your body doesn't necessarily grow along with where you're supposed to. So, you know, I have different, you know, things that have never really grown to the real size. My hands are very tiny, um, you know, different things like that. Um, the fact that I'm actually playing piano and um, being a concert pianist is like quite amazing because I had to teach myself how to play three or six times after every wow. surgery, three on the left hand, three on the right hand. I have wrist fusions, joint replacements in my fingers. I still play because I have a very big sense of determination. Clearly. I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, but if I didn't have that, I don't know where I'd be right now because so many times it was just because of that determination that I had that got me through the hard times because there really is very little they can do. There's very little hope when you have a disease like this. So what? So this happened to you fairly early in life and long before there were any treatments. When did you actually first get the opportunity to try a biologic to help improve your condition? Well, that wasn't until 11 years ago, 11, 12 years ago. I finally got onto the um, biologic Remicade. Uh, at first, um, the rule was you had to fail every other drug available to you. Okay. So that took about two and a half years, the process of going wow. through all the other drugs. And I had to not only like fail saying, oh, well, they didn't quite work well to like, I have intense allergic reactions. I lost my hair on one of them. Oh my. Like it, it was incredible. Um, so a lot of these reactions that I did have were not just like, oh, a rash here or there. We're talking big reactions and very serious ones. I had to fail every drug before I was able to go on to or even apply for the biologic. I was going to go on the trials, um, but I missed that by one day. My doctor did not get the application form in, and so I missed it by one day. And I can think back to that day, and I remember just feeling completely hopeless and devastated because at that time, I was so allergic to all the drugs they had been trying on me. They had to pull me off everything. That means that they give you yet another drug that leeches all of these drugs out of your system oh, wow. so that you can start fresh. At this point in time, I had nothing in my system. I was barely able to walk 10, 20 feet without incredible pain. Um, it was not a pretty life to live. It was not a life that you would want to wake up to every morning. Depression was very big uh, and very hard to deal with at that time. And so then once you were able to start on Remicade, what happened? A world of difference. Um, I can very well remember the first treatment I got. I went in not knowing what to expect. You kind of walk in there and think, well, is this gonna be like all the other ones? And we know that there's a dosing period. And even with Remicade, you have to get it a little bit more often in the beginning, so you dose up. Um, I didn't expect anything the first day. I, I try to be more maybe pessimistic, but what my goal is, is I keep my expectations low and that way I'm not so terribly disappointed when they don't work out. Sometimes that works. Anyway, I went in, got my infusion, and as I was sitting there with the infusion, it's a four-hour procedure, and the first time it took four hours for me. 
uh, in that time, I could feel the heaviness lifting off my body. It was, I can't explain it any other way. It was just like I could feel things getting better. And that was while I sat there. By the time I basically shuffled in, by the time I walked out, there's quite a walk to get from the room in the University Hospital. I had it there to go outside and find your car and everything else. It was incredible. Uh, the difference I noticed like four hours later. The drug worked that quickly, that quickly, that quickly and, and that age, well. No, it lasted. Well, in the beginning, it's a dosing period. Okay, so you it go, takes a while to sort of build you it up. You go once, and then, uh, and then you go a week later, I, I believe, and then you go, I think, three weeks later, right. and then you go into your eight-week pattern. Okay. I received a whole it. bunch in India. Yeah, yeah they <laughs> pump you right yeah, full. Right, right. Um, so with me, I now take it every six weeks because my disease is a little bit further progressed. So I find that I don't go through the dips and valleys when okay. I take it every six weeks. So that, again, like I... I've been saying it's always to keep your your, your disease right. under control and keep it stable. Once you go through the dips and the valleys a little bit too much, it takes your body that much longer to build your levels back up right. to where they need to be, where you feel that good effect. Right. So right now, when I do get Remicade, I got my infusion a week ago. Um, I feel like for the first month. Like I could leap tall buildings with a single bound. Like it's incredible. It gives you the energy. You can make it through your day without taking a nap or you can make it through your day without feeling totally exhausted and with the brain fog that we often deal with, mm, with arthritis. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that makes, it makes an incredible difference. So, so we have now the, the new government policy that sort of come into place where they're sort of requiring everybody who's uh, taking some of these biologics uh, like Remicade and, uh, and some others to switch then over to the biosimilar equivalent that are coming from some other pharmaceutical companies. Now, I think uh, none of us are here because we're advocating for, for big pharma. I don't think. No, we recognize uh, they, they cost the system a lot of money. They do sometimes some kind of things to try to protect their market share and hang on to these big profits they're able to make. But, you know, in talking about this with your doctors, uh, have you had a chance to speak with your, you haven't yet? Okay. Okay. Uh, Leanne, have you? Um, I'm a little bit more into like um, education in this field. Okay. Right. So I've only spoken with them um, just about what have they heard. Right. So have they given you any sense of how they feel about uh, about this policy or they they feel like there's not enough information that's been given. Okay. They feel like they they their patients are asking questions and they don't have answers. So at this point there hasn't been any significant communication from government. We have a it's 6 July, month timeline yeah, that July was announced 1st. in early December and so far not you haven't heard anything or no information on how this transition is going to take place. Honestly, the most information is coming from the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Okay. Um, the letters and the information that's getting put out there is mostly coming from from Janssen, because I don't know why, but that's there's nothing. There's no other information out there. Indeed. They're pro providing so, anything. So I mean, obviously, uh, your preference would be that the government not go ahead with this force switch, but if they're intent on moving forward with that policy, what would you like to see from them to help you sort of manage this transition? Uh, you know, potentially help put your mind at ease. I do 100% not agree with the force switch at all. Um, I think we have enough evidence and I think we have enough people who are going to be harmed in a very detrimental way by switching them mandatorily. 
Um, as you have said, there is no other area that does this with a force switch. And so why is Canada trying to break ground on that? Um, I do believe that we do need to save money. That is like for sure, we, we do need to do that, but we can't do it on the backs of people who are suffering and disadvantaged at, at the best of times. When you have an autoimmune disease, you spend a lot of your time dodging the bullet. Like uh, you're either in the hospital for a long time or you're just getting out and you don't have a chance to really work as much as the normal person would be able to. You can't build up that that little cushion that you have. We're usually the ones who are a little bit more disadvantaged financially, but yet we now have no hope. We're going to have to go and pay more for medications. More medications mean more money that we're putting out. Whereas you've got the Remicade, that eliminated a lot of the medications that I needed. Um, because there's virtually no side effects, at least for myself. I had no side effects, no reactions ever. What I would need the government to do if they're like stuck on this and they decide they have to do it for us, we need more information. We need to have clinics that are in with like within very close proximity to where people live. We can't be flying them in from somewhere just because there's a clinic in who knows where. A lot of people need to be traveling quite a distance. We who live in the city, I think have it a lot easier. But right now I know of two clinics in the city of Edmonton that actually will give you a biosimilar drug. They cannot be expected to take on an extra, potentially 26,000 Albertans. Right, so there's significant infrastructure that's in place to support. So again, it's not as simple as just going to the pharmacy, getting a prescription filled, changing a drug. There's a whole clinic system, all sorts of other supports. There's been the compassionate care programs that have been set up by uh, by the pharmaceutical company. So again, if government wants to move forward with this, it sounds to me like there has to be a, there should be a lot of thought put into this. There has to be some serious strategies for change management. Yeah, it feels like the planning has not been thought of. The, the and the patients that are, are stable. Um, it makes sense for a new patient to try a biosimilar, but there's nothing, absolutely. If I was told that, that there was an, a medication available, it was similar to something you might've heard, Remicade, we're going to try this. That makes perfect sense. But for people who are stable, who are well, to potentially put them at risk makes no sense just to save a few dollars on a bottom line on a spreadsheet right now. That doesn't mean it's going to save them money down the road. They're not going to see that number until it's far too late. Um, and also just the, the amount of time it would take for GIs. If there is exemption, what does that mean? Uh, where's the form? How long does it take? What are the parameters? Like that's some basic information that patients and doctors should have right now. Right. So that's something that uh, that we've heard now is that government intends to create an exemption panel of some sort to consider whether uh, patients that are currently on a biologic should be allowed to stay on that drug. But at present, there's been you're, what you're hearing from GIs and folks is that they have no information on how that's going to work, who's going to man that, what that process is going to be, and we're already you know halfway into January. And I think about when I was on Remicade and you had to get special authorizations sometimes, sometimes, sorry, I'm cold, um, to pay for medication. And it would take months. And that that dip in Valley, right. you were sick. Like you would mm. do everything you could to stay out of the hospital. But 
you like at some point you can't you're so fatigued you lose so much blood you just you can't do anything but go to the ER like trust me if you see an RA or an IBD patient at the ER it's the last place any of us want to be we know you're overwhelmed we know you know that what our symptoms are but if we're there we're desperate and that's what's going to happen with these types of changes because it's going to take too long and then the patients will have no options besides going on you know other medications like steroids or other things that are cheaper that'll cause bone loss and depression and you name it there there are cheap medications out there that they'll find as a quick fix but they don't work they're, they're big band-aids that do nothing. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I recognize this. This is a major challenge in our healthcare system in Alberta. I mean, I think everywhere, frankly, um, you know, uh, drug costs are high. But in Alberta, we've got a number of areas where, where costs are high and we're trying to think of how we can cut back. But, you know, when I, when I talk with folks, when I talk with physicians about physician compensation, when I talk to folks that are on biologics or folks in a lot of other areas, I mean, they're not against making changes. They're not against trying to find ways to find savings, but the question is how thoughtfully and carefully do we carry that out? Just recognizing that with the complexities of things like just, you know, all this infrastructure for biology and everything, there's a lot of pieces to consider. So, you know, you guys were just at the press conference with me and thank you for being part of that. But, you know, we had folks sort of asking, well, you know, isn't this government's role in leadership to make these kinds of decisions? You know, they're hard choices, but they got to be made. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Is is the leadership done once you make that decision or is there more work you got to do, I guess, to sort of think about how those implications play out and how those are going to be managed? I don't know many people who can make a decision at that level and not give a why or a how. Like that's some pretty basic things when you're at that level, at that level of leadership. I'm just making this change because I am. I I feel like I'm five years old again. And my mom just told me, yeah, this is what we're doing. Really? My biggest issue is, is, is the patient and doctor uh, relationship too. Sure. Like that scares me because I have 20 years of experience with this doctor. I'm, how long do you have? You how? Uh, yeah, it was like yesterday. You said right. Years. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to put yeah. a number on that. <laughs> but to, to say that every single person is going to be like an easy case or, or or check a box, it does not exist. Right. So yeah, I guess government sort of overriding your your doc, your your doctor patient relationship, sort of saying we are going to make the decision for you, and then you know maybe you'll have an out if you can prove it to us well enough. Like that's that's a bit of a concerning precedent to set. It is, and for me, I'm just going well. Who made you uh, or gave you the medical degree? You don't have a license to practice medicine. Uh, you have no history on us patients. How do you? Where do you get off? telling us what to do and what medications to take. Mm. And then just trying to convince us with a few little documents here and there that, oh yeah, it's totally effective. When we know that not everybody will benefit from that. Right, and so certainly there, there have been studies that have been done sort of looking at this in Europe. They've, they've had the biosimilars in place for quite a while. Uh, of course, they don't do a forced non-medical switch. Uh, I think with the exception of Norway, every other market in, in Europe that has introduced the biosimilars has said, you know, it is up to patients and doctors to decide. Uh, in some cases, they have made that transition and it's been successful. Um, and I guess that's kind of what the minister's looking at. He's saying, well, we've looked at enough studies. We've looked at cases where people have switched. It doesn't seem to be a massive problem. And so that's kind of the basis on which they're making that decision. What are your thoughts on that? 
I'd like to see any of the gastroenterologists that stood up behind him when he said that. And that's true. They Not one GI yeah. has said, yeah, okay, this is a great idea. Like, these are the specialists. These are the people with the education, the experience, the one-on-one every day in the trenches. Um, and rheumatoid artists, doctors, of course, same thing. No one is there. No one's backing them up. So... Right. If, you're, if your specialists aren't backing you up and your patients are crying out with letters, thousands of letters, I think the evidence speaks for itself that you're not listening. I feel the same way. Um, they're not listening to the patients. Right now, they don't tell us what the exceptions or the exemptions may be. That leaves us all wondering, well, will I be one of those lucky ones mm. um, that is going to get it? Um, I have a very unusual problem Um being on Remicade and things like that, you need to get IV access every six weeks. I have incredibly small veins. And it seems that I know that every nurse should be able to put it in an IV, but they're not all the same. Mm. You can tell me what you want, but I have experience in this. They are not the same. I have gone to clinics before where I would walk in, I would sit there and they would try to get access for me for an IV needle eight to 10 times. Eventually, they would give up and send me home and have me book another appointment. Well, I took time off work to get there. I got all the way there. I paid for parking. I did everything I was supposed to. They can't find access. And now I have to do it all over again another day. That takes a lot of time. And it's very frustrating on me because in this process of stabbing me eight to 10 times to get an IV access, we are scarring my veins up even Mm. more. I'm to the point now where I go to a clinic where I know there is one nurse in that clinic who is very good at what she does. And I walk out of there with an IV in my leg or my ankle, anywhere but my arms or my hands where I'm supposed to. Is that going to be exempted? Or are they going to look at that and say, oh, anybody can install an IV? So that's part of it too, right? So this is something that for, for, for folks that have been dealing with this for a long time, you've built very particular relationships of care and very particular things that, you know, yeah, that cover some of those challenging parts for individuals in their conditions. And so this is a fairly significant disruption of the stuff that's helped keep you stable. So again, it's just a question of, you know, if government wants to move forward on this, you know, leadership is also about making sure you manage how you introduce these changes, recognize the complexities, and sort of ensure that there's the kind of supports that there need to be. Like any business would have a, a planning stage, an implementation stage, evaluation. Sure, you're a project feedback. coordinator. You know how these things yeah. go. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then, you, and then you can reestablish. Okay, so we have a demand. We're not meeting this. Okay, we need more infrastructure here. We need more specialized nurses, whatever it might be. But none of that is being considered. I'm scared of, <laughs> I think back to the early days of being on Remicade where you had to be in the hospital to get the infusions. Right. There's no room in the hospitals to to have Remicade patients getting infusions. And for example, I'm also very anemic because of Crohn's disease. It takes me at least three months to get an appointment for an infusion of iron. So what are you going to do for the patients after every six weeks for Remicade if you don't have the infrastructure built in already? How's it feel uh, for both of you? I imagine this is the first time sort of being, you know, quote unquote political and sort of <laughs> getting involved on an issue. What's the experience been like for you? Um, it's been positive so far, a little nerve wracking and overwhelming, I would say. But um, 
it's different having to advocate so hard for something that is going to affect your life so much, potentially, um, and having no answers and no guarantees. And I know there can't be a guarantee, but it's difficult to have to advocate this hard for something that should just, it, it doesn't really take a lot of common sense. The people who are on it, there's too much, much to lose if you're taken off. You should be grandfathered through. That is just a given. So, and for you, Leanne, what's it been like? Uh, for me, it's, it's one of those unfortunate things where you have to learn to advocate for yourself, um, whether it's with your doctor, with the, with the government, whatever it might be, because the only thing is your body. It, the only thing that I've had a hard lesson learning is my number one job is me. And I need my doctors to be you know, you know, a part of my care. I need my government to be a part of my care because all of it works together. You know, we are known in Canada for some having some of the best healthcare system there is. But it seems like every decision that keeps getting made is knocking away at that decision, like whether it's patient choice, being the word forced. Every time I hear that word, it I can literally feel something in my body twinge. And you're talking to people who are chronically ill. You're talking to people who are already fatigued, exhausted from a shower. Right. It just every day we call it spoons theory. Yes. You run out of spoons. Right. So to come even down here which is important, drains you, exhausts you. And now you have to worry and stress about whether or not your medication is going to get approved. I'm again on a new medication, a new biologic on compassionate care. So where is my drug going to leave me in the future? I'm scared out of my mind because I've been down this road. I've been down this road and it doesn't end well. So I'm prepared for, I know this is a part of life. Yeah. I know this is, so this is why it's important. Whether you're writing letters, whether you're taking the time to come down here, talking to your guys, asking those questions, getting on social media, just do it. Because if you don't make your voice heard, you know, and, and thankfully there are people like you, David Shepard, who are doing their part, but that, you know, you're one person, you're one person, you have a great team, but every single patient out there that's listening or that sees it on the news, do your part as well, because that's what you have to do with your government. You have to make them accountable. This is their job. Well, thank you to both of you for, for being willing to come down, share your stories, <laughs> advocate for yourselves, but also you're advocating for a whole lot of other people. You know, the flood of emails, phone calls, everything that I've received on this issue. There's a lot of people who are worried. So thank you for helping raise this voice. We can hope that uh, the government's going to, going to listen and start talking with you. Yes. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you. So I really appreciated that those folks took the time to come in and talk. I, I recognize these are issues that uh, are, are really concerning and it's, and it's difficult sometimes to walk the line between what could be considered uh, or what the government has accused of being fear mongering or talking about people's real and legitimate concerns about the process and the means by which this policy has been implemented and put in place. But speaking of how policies and proposals are being rolled out, 
there are real concerns with how the government has come forward with a set of proposals for family physicians in the province of Alberta. Now, as I mentioned, uh, it's not it's not uh, atypical for government to negotiate with physicians in the Alberta Medical Association. Indeed, that happens on a regular basis every few years. Conservative governments did so on a regular basis and negotiated a fairly complex system of how doctors are paid under the system fee for service, which basically means doctors see a patient for a particular length of time, they get paid a certain amount. They have to recommend for a certain test or certain procedures or other things, they are paid a certain amount. So the government then negotiated with doctors. Doctors came back and said, you know what? We need to have an opportunity to spend more time with our patients. We, we think it should, we should find a way to incentivize that. That's going to provide better patient care. That's going to cut down costs in other parts of the healthcare system. If we spend a bit more time talking with patients so that we're really addressing the root cause of what can be complex issues. So they negotiated some fees called complex modifiers, which basically just add on a little bit of extra pay for when doctors spend a little bit of extra time, family physicians in uh, frontline day-to-day clinics, spend a little more time talking with their patients and working to address some of the more complex problems. The government of Alberta now is has proposed, amongst a few other things which are equally concerning, to to change how those complex modifiers work, increasing it from 15 minutes to 25 minutes, which could have a real impact on a lot of doctors who've built their models, their business model, their ability to provide care and be able to pay for their clinics and their staff and everyone around the system as it currently exists. So I've, uh, I've got a conversation here with Dr. Vitesh Shepershat, who is a uh, family physician who operates in a clinic in Airdrie, so a, a, uh, a rural area. And I talk with him about his experience operating as a rural doctor in Slave Lake and now in Airdrie and his concerns with the proposed changes from the government and the somewhat aggressive and almost antagonistic way the government has approached it with them. Here's my conversation with Dr. Shepershat. All right. Uh, I'm uh, joined here today by Dr. Vitesh Shepershat, who is a family doctor in Airdrie. Welcome, Vitesh. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, guys. Excellent. Vitesh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice in Airdrie? Uh, what are your patients like? How long have you been out there? What's uh, what's the practice like there? Okay. So, um, so I, I currently work out of a practice that's uh, a typical family uh, clinic. We we see patients approximately in 15-minute intervals. We try uh, and squeeze a few walk-ins during our lunch hour to help people with same-day appointments. Um, Airdrie has a fairly uh, younger population, so there's lots of mothers and babies. Um, I do rounds at one of the uh, senior lodges in town also, so I do get a bit of the geriatric uh, uh uh, spectrum to my practice. Um, Edry doesn't have a hospital. We have an urgent care only, so the majority of our patients for hospital care end up going into one of the hospitals in Calgary. Some choose to go up to Didsbury Hospital for simpler medical problems. Um, so that's generally the spectrum of uh, the Edry population. I've worked for the first five years of my career. I was up north in Slave Lake between 2010 and 2014. And uh, that that's, you know, I'm fairly familiar with the typical rural um, um, 
practice and right. uh, I still continue rural work out of Didsbury Hospital so I'm familiar with the the rural dynamics as it stands. Okay, so you've kind of seen this from all sides and uh, I know when I was speaking with you previously you you mentioned you've seen this from a few different sides when you first started practicing in rural Alberta you worked as a physician in a clinic that was owned by uh, by uh, by another group. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. What was your experience like there working? I guess uh, you, uh, I'm not quite sure what the proper term is for it, but I guess working as a contractor in another clinic. What was your experience like? Yeah. So the experience in the clinics I've worked at were a little hit and miss. Um, initially, the clinic in Slave Lake that I worked at was an associate clinic, which was owned uh, privately. For all intents and purposes, the clinic worked pretty well. It was. Um, you know, it, it, it was a smaller entity and uh, the dynamics as a rural physician worked well enough considering, you know, you were coming in as an immigrant uh, doctor, you had a contract with Alberta Health Services and the clinic and that went on well. Um, then I'm sure most Albertans do remember that the fires in Slave Lake of 2011. Mm. And then Alberta Health um, proposed to the community of Slave Lake where uh, they were trying to introduce a system where the family care clinic model came in. Right. And, you know, the family care model in principle is a very good model. I just, I feel that the implementation was quite flawed. And, and, and that system, you know, quite frankly, I didn't like towards the end of my time in Slave Lake. There were some other considerations that played into it. And then, you know, I chose to to, to leave and come down to uh, Airdrie at the time. When I joined Airdrie, I initially came into Airdrie on a walk-in clinic type model. I, I, I was doing family practice and the practice that I was working in offered dedicated walk-in services so the doctors rotated their their work week picking up walk-in shifts and then seeing uh seeing family patients during uh on other times or other days of the week and you know i really did not like the fam the the walk-in system um i think the walk-in system is 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 a very rushed um poor doctor patient relation well there is for all intents and purposes very little doctor-patient relationship and uh, I think the services that the patient receives is is, is, is fairly substandard to what most family mm. doctors would like to provide in Alberta. That rushed uh, system of seeing patients for sort of five to ten minutes at a time on a walk-in system uh, does not provide any quality of care. It's, you know, easy for a quick prescription refill and a sore throat here and a, you know, a quick rash there. But, you know, most walk-in patients are unattached right and would come in with slightly more complex problems which you could not give them answers to you had no time to work them up so it 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 it, it, it it's not an ideal system it works for a certain target population but not for the majority of uh patients. Yeah, I could I could see how that'd be problematic. You're sort of seeing people you've never seen before. You've got 10 minutes to talk to them. So you're not able to deal with any sort of more complex health issues. You can only sort of deal maybe with just the symptoms, the stuff on the surface. So you're yeah. not really, I guess, gaining that efficiency in healthcare by actually addri- addressing root problems. So people are likely to keep continuing in the system, coming for more 10-minute yeah. appointments. And ultimately, that's going to be more expensive. Yeah, and the problem comes up is that there's no rapport between uh, doctor and patient. So often us as as family doctors, we don't always need 
everything in black and white in front of us before we make a clinical judgment call. But, you know, if you've got a rapport with the patient and you know their history well, you can make a clinical call and say to a patient that I'm not worried about the symptom that you're coming in with. Let us try a management plan of, of a watch and wait approach. Right. And most patients, if they, if, if they trust you as their family doctor, are prepared to give it a couple of weeks to watch and wait on the sore ankle or or the vague abdominal pain with no red flag symptoms and so forth and come back and see you. So a lot of the time, us as family doctors, we, we you know, we make clinical judgment calls without evidence of a blood or a lab or an x-ray investigation right. report in front of us. And patients are happy with that because they trust you right. as their family doctor. But it takes having that relationship of trust with them and then they have to know you for that to work. So so, so that's why you went ahead, I guess, and then you broke off from that model. And you started your own clinic. So can you tell me a bit about what was the model that you wanted to set your clinic up on? So my So... The current clinic that that I work out of is uh, the majority of the family doctors do 15-minute appointments, right? It gives us lots of time to discuss multiple simple problems with patients versus, you know, one or two less complex patients' uh, problems per per visit. So excuse me on that. Um, So we have chosen to move away from the rapid volume-based practice towards a more comprehensive care practice. Um, the majority of the doctors in this in this clinic see in between high 20s to mid-30s of patients per day. And I think that is, by consensus, the numbers that most family doctors would like to see should they have the ability to um, control appointments. Sometimes that's not always possible. You look at some of your rural colleagues that have of a vast number of patients to go through in a day. Mm. So we've chosen to take a more comprehensive approach. We book lots of time for complete physicals. We have um, um, our MOA service, which is our medical office assistance service, and uh, goes through our patients' charts. They screen the patients before um, us as physicians enter the room for our complete full physical. So what that means is patients who are coming in for example, for as a female, our staff um, through our EMR will go back and check when the last pap smear was done, the mammograms, all the different cancer checks we can do, um, get up their metabolic profile, so their diabetes monitoring, their cholesterol monitoring. So but that gets done a lot of the time before us as family doctors even enter the room. When I then enter the room, I start talking to the patient from sort of my agenda. I give the patient their their chance to speak about any variety of things. So we we achieve a lot in that 30 minutes that we choose to book for our full physicals, as an example, right? Mm. Um, Our standard appointments are generally 15-minute appointments, which allow us to deal with a number of issues per visit. So you try to take a much more holistic approach. Yeah, patients patients actually enjoy the uh, the experience of not being rushed, of being offered, is there something else I can help you with in this visit? Do you have anything else uh, to discuss on this visit versus a rushed approach where sometimes, as you know, in the walk-in system where you've actually had to stop a patient and say, listen, you know, I'm sorry, I cannot handle more than however many would be a reasonable number of problems per visit. 
Right. So this is possible. You're able to set up this model because of the previous agreements that have been negotiated between the Alberta Medical Association and the government of Alberta, which uh, go a ways back, but involve something called the complex modifier, which to my understanding basically means that once you go past a certain amount of time with the patient, you're able to make a second claim for an additional amount for the extra time that you spend with that patient. Is that right? Yeah. So basically what the the current billing system i think is extremely fair it gets negotiated on a somewhat routine or regular basis between alberta health and the ama previously in good faith and um, a lot of the time the suggestions are made to benefit the patients number one number two responsible fiscal spending on the on the on the physician side Bearing in mind that the budget is not bottomless, us as uh, you know, us as physicians, I think the majority of the physicians do acknowledge that the you know the the medical budget is not bottomless. Uh, you know, I've been in contact with some of my AMA colleagues, and my AMA colleagues have said that over the last couple of years we have taken negotiating steps to save Alberta Health a lot of money Indeed. in you know in 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 line with the with the economic um, system. So you know we've. We've always negotiated well with the AMA and had a really good system in place that allowed us as, as family doctors to choose to, to, to work in a comprehensive care model. And should you don't like that, you can still have this walking type system, which I personally don't appreciate. Um, the current billing system allows us to bill fairly for the work done. Should you remove these complex time modifiers and you switch that away from the first unit of a time modifier being from 15 minutes onwards towards a 25-minute model, it, um, you know, financially speaking, most family doctors are not going to afford to be able to provide care to their patients within that time frame, plus have the ability to run their practices on a business level. You know, I think what most of the public don't understand is that most family doctors are independent contractors. So we've got any variety of financial uh, um, um, budgetary constraints on our end to, to take into account. I would love to sit and see a patient for 25 minutes before um, being paid for it, but I need to be paid in a manner that allows me to run my practice, right? Um, so, you know, most most people previous to these time complex modifiers would see patients for 10 minutes and left, right? And then these complex time modifiers came up, which allowed physicians to spend a little more time. And a lot of family doctors appreciate the 15 minute um, interval because you can, you know, you can achieve a lot in that 15 minutes and still bill for that additional five minutes of time. On a financial model, on the, as the current system stands, I actually get paid more for seeing six 10-minute appointments an hour than I do for seeing four 15-minute appointments an hour. So a lot of family doctors have taken the, the choice of going down that 15-minute route. Um, for comprehensive care, we get paid a little more, but we achieve more in the long run for our patients. And it's more, it's more feasible on my end from a logistical standpoint with regards to paperwork and referrals behind the um, you know, uh, after direct face-to-face -face time to go and send off a decent referral. You know, if I rush sending off a referral to a specialist because I'm, I'm, I'm constrained to get everything done within 10 minutes, there's any variety of problems that come up uh, with that rush model. 
Indeed. Now, I want to go back. When you were talking earlier, you said, you know, previously negotiated with the government in good faith. Now, you used the word previously. Do you have some concerns with how the, the minister and the government have approached you and your colleagues in the AMA with this round of negotiations? Yeah. Yeah, Dave, you know, to be quite honest with you, I've, 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 I've been in, in Canada about 10 years now. That's my personal story. I came in from South Africa in, uh, in 2010. And, you know, um, I, I've... I've always felt appreciated uh, in any variety of manners, and I'm very thankful for what I what I have and what Canada has provided for me. I I have to say I'm 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 largely disappointed by the mechanisms by which the current uh, Albertan government chooses to go about um, behaving uh, in the public manner regarding some of this negotiation process. It comes across as condescending, heavy-handed quite frankly, in bad faith. Um, there's a lot of mistrust that is developing between the government and the doctors right now. To put this in a chronological time frame, um, the doctors through the AMA received an email in the first week of December stating that Alberta Health had planned some proposed changes, right? And mm-hmm. that's kind of when all of this, this this stuff came to the to the forefront. I mean, for God's sake, it's three weeks before Christmas. Yeah, right? cold and flu um, season. You know, I mean, how much time does the average person have beyond their regular life in the in the in, in those two to three weeks before Christmas? Um, these implementation dates were short. They were aggressive for all intents and purposes. February first were some of these implementation dates. And look, I do understand government has a budget to to do whatever. I totally understand that, right? But you know, you cannot give. Um, the AMA and doctors less than a month for all intents and purposes to to, to provide a reasonable response to these implementations. I, I am not a fan of the manner in which uh, Minister Shandro um, goes onto a public forum like Twitter and posts extracts of what he believes might be relevant to his agenda. Yeah, bits and pieces because, of data, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I am, I'm, I'm not 100% familiar with the McKinnon report, but I've, I, you know, I've read parts that he provides, and I've read parts that the AMA has provided to us, right? The McKinnon report from his end shows that Albertan doctors are paid about $100,000 more than some of their provincial counterparts, right? Mm-hmm. In dollar amount, right? And the other extract of the McKinnon report that I saw showed that Albertan physicians are paid percentage-wise in line with provincial budgets. I mean, we all know that you know cost of living, and everybody gets paid more than their professional counterpart in a neighboring province might be. I mean, for all intents and purposes, MLAs in Alberta are paid about 120,000 per annum mm-hmm. um, um, versus Saskatchewan, which I believe is around 95 to 96,000. That's close mm-hmm. to a 20,000 dollar. <laughs> sorry, that's close to a 20 percent difference between Alberta and Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. So from what I saw, Albertan MLAs are paid the highest amongst all the all the provinces. So you cannot post a extract stating that Albertan doctors are paid a dollar amount more than their provincial counterparts and expect us as physicians to trust you 
thereafter. Indeed, I, mean, like, I recognize uh, you know in my own work as the as the health critic, it's I've learned more and more how complex our healthcare system is, yeah. and there's you it's know, not an easy thing to understand. You have to spend a lot of time. There's a lot of context, and so to as you say, be posting you know bits and pieces of data that uh, aren't sourced. We aren't given the reference of where they're from or the context yeah. of what they mean. It's it strikes me as a bit disingenuous. You know, it's 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 funny you mention that because a patient of mine came in yesterday, and this gentleman is a teacher, and he says to me he's actually got quite frustrated following Twitter, and he said to me that the health minister doesn't actually understand that the majority of the patients of the patients read this information and actually side with the medical fraternity because they look mm-hmm. at what we get paid per visit, and for all intents and purposes, a plumber or an electrician gets paid more per service that they provide hmm. per physician does, right? So, you know, I, I think it's counterintuitive to his to his argument in all honesty. Uh, I, I, I think the public isn't isn't as 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 gullible as they might think they are. Um, I, I, I think it's important that the health minister negotiate in good faith with the AMA. We are not we as physicians are not trying to rip the government off. If there are problems with the billing system, let's fix it together right um one of one of my colleagues uh, posted you dave i believe a really good letter uh, i think his name was dr edwards he was a pediatric emerge doc at uh, at um, yes. the children's hospital yes, and he likened yes. yeah yep and he likened the minister's behavior to butchery rather than surgery was mm. his words yeah and i couldn't you know i, I think that's a, that's that's a really really good simple explanation you know, these changes need to be planned. They need to be looked at thoroughly before you you try and change a healthcare system or a model to suit a budgetary need. I fully understand that budget cuts need to be made, but you know, pick areas and and and, and negotiate in good faith so that you get good bang for your buck. Number one, and that patient care is not, I was sorry, I should say patient care first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. Patient care isn't interrupted, number one. And number two, you don't, you get good bang for your buck regarding regarding budgetary uh, amounts that you end up saving, right? There's a lot of wastage in, in, in healthcare. We all, as people who work in the system, know this, right? And it's up to government to find solutions with the different authorities and, you know, truly negotiate in good faith. You know, so, the, the, uh, a more collaborative approach. Yep, 100% right. I mean, the minister was quiet over the Christmas and New Year period. And then I believe the last week or so from the little that I've seen, he's, he's been pretty vocal and on, on Twitter. And at the same time, he expects us as physicians to trust him mm. with, uh, with, with negotiating with the AMA. I mean, seriously, that's, that's, not, that's not in good Indeed. faith. Yeah, I mean, I could, sorry. you know, Go ahead, Dave. You know, if, 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 if the AMA, as an example, were to start posting extracts as to how much expenditure gets done and so forth, the public are going to be really upset. That's not good faith negotiations, right? Indeed. And that's and that's been a concern for me. You know, uh, I've often talked in my role as critic about how this government is creating chaos in the healthcare system. And indeed, we've seen them making a lot of very rapid changes with seemingly very little consultation. They uh, there was a couple articles that came out at the end of the year. A health minister talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to be making some big moves on health care next year. Um, 
and yeah, and a lot of it seems to be, you know, this kind of public attack, whether it's on nurses and other frontline staff or yeah. on physicians or so many others. And I just don't understand why in this work to try to find savings in the healthcare system, the, the government and the minister seem to feel that it's best to try to make enemies of the people who deliver that frontline care. Do you know what's 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 what what what's really upsetting about Alberta Alberta's long-term future should this behavior continue is that there's a large population of aging physicians in all different specialities and you look at this current stance and you ask yourself as a medical student or a resident why would I choose Alberta mm. as a foreign doctor why would I choose Alberta right um, you know you may have a situation right now where we have sufficient doctors in certain parts of the province and obviously it's lacking in other parts of the province right mm -hmm. um you know you may run into a trouble where physicians truly are going to be upset enough to want to leave um you know most of us have licenses that are compatible with the united states there's lots of doctors coming in from the uk that i've dealt with most of them are, are here on a temporary i shouldn't say temporary but on a fairly um a mobile system they they put they they on work permits or permanent residence they could very easily leave and you know we run into a situation of a physician shortage and a family doctor shortage like certain large aspects of bc and ontario have right Certainly. And we saw that here in Alberta back in the 90s when we had a fairly serious round of health care cuts. We, I know my own family doctor of, uh, of, uh, of over a decade that had been with my family picked up and moved to the United States. A lot of young medical graduates chose to leave along with a lot of other health professionals. And then, yeah, we ended up with a shortage in the early 2000s and all of a sudden then had to start negotiating and paying some higher wages to bring people back. So, yeah, I agree with you. It is not a good fix for the long term. So, but thank you so much, Vitesh, for joining us today. I really appreciate uh, getting your perspective as a rural physician. And, and thank you for the good work all of you and your colleagues are doing. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Bye. Excellent. Well, I really appreciated uh, Dr. Uh, Shepershan taking the time to have that conversation with me. And thank you to all of you for listening today. I, I know sometimes maybe some of this stuff can get a little bit into the weeds, but that's part of why I wanted to have this podcast here. So we could try to make a little more sense of what can be some really complex issues. And certainly healthcare in Alberta is one of those. And though I am the critic for health, I can promise you uh, we're not going to make that the focus of every episode of The Herd, but I appreciate the, the opportunity to sit down and talk about it with you today. So next week we'll be back. We're going to be delving into some new topics. We've just found out recently that the Alberta legislature will be coming back in at the end of February. Uh, so looking forward to that opportunity. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff as we get ready for that next legislative session, the government's next full budget, and uh, what we expect to see and some of the implications of that there. So today, I want to send you out with a bit of music from a Calgary band, a, uh, a group called Ghost Boy. Uh, Ghost Boy is a, uh, is a duo, a couple gentlemen from the Calgary area who, uh, who, play, who play acoustic instruments, uh, sort of country and roots music, uh, do a lot of great stuff in and around the Calgary area, or out on 
tour as well, hitting some other spots. But uh, a little while ago, they took the opportunity to uh, go into the studio back in March of last year with some friends of theirs from Calgary R&B band Mocking Shadows. They brought in the horn section from Mocking Shadows, and they themselves are there and doing a cover of a great tune by Dolly Parton, which I think kind of ties in well with talking about doctors and the work they do. These guys are doing a cover of Dolly Parton's Nine to Five. So here's Calgary uh, Roots duo Ghost Boy with the Mocking Shadows, Dolly Parton's Nine to Five. I'll see you next week. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the street, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Same boat. 